And sorry, I know you guys wanted to clap, but everything I'm going to say is going to be amazing. Um, <laughs> how do you pay, man? Uh, if you don't write checks, how do you pay these guys? Great cash, homie. Mama, there goes that man. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of Carson Sack Podcast where we talk balls. We have a jam-packed episode for you this week. We have the Sweet 16 of the NCAA Tournament. We have a little Major League Baseball talk as the MLB season starts today. Just a bit of note, I am recording this right now. This part at 3.07 a.m. on Thursday morning because I care that gosh darn much about getting an episode out to you this week. And then we also have the mail sack on this episode of Carson Sack, and I'm going to start that this episode off with that right after this little intro. So sit back, relax. As I said, we have... NCAA basketball talk with the Sweet 16. We have MLB talk because the season starts today, and we have the mail sack. So here we go. Let's get this episode of Cards and Sack Podcast, episode 51, where we talk ball started with the return of a fan favorite, a favorite segment of mine, the mail sack. The first question in the mail sack comes from Davis Canapel through Snapchat, who asks, why would Jason Kidd ruin his career by going to L.A.? The thing is, um, his coaching stint so far with Milwaukee and the Nets have not been very good at all. Um, extremely underwhelming, if you ask me. And I think with the possibility of having LeBron and that young core work out on top of maybe a free agent you get this year and maybe a top 10 pick that you can get in this draft because of how poorly you did this year. That is probably extremely, extremely enticing to Jason Kidd. And I feel like Magic Johnson probably thinks of Jason Kidd highly and as a player. And like I said, to me, the coaching hasn't really transferred over and I, he can probably teach the game well, but I think coaching takes so much more than just that. It encapsulates so much more than just that. So it hasn't clicked yet. I really wish they would just hire like somebody so much more simpler. But it's L.A. They need a big name. I could see them doing Jason Kidd. But I don't think anybody really views it as like... Jason Kidd's going to ruin his career if he goes to L.A. Because if you look at, like I said, what he did in Milwaukee and Nets and everything, it hasn't really worked out. So I think in this situation with LeBron and what they could possibly add, this gives him and sets him up the best to succeed. The pressure on him if he does go there is going to be way more than any coaching job he's had in the past. But... Again, I think Magic thinks highly of him as a player and thinks that's going to translate to coaching and stuff, but it hasn't yet. So, again, I don't think Jason Kidd, if he was offered that, would go into the job with the mindset of, oh, I'm going to ruin my career. But I think if he does fail miserably, that's the last coaching job he would get in the NBA. The next question comes from Kennedy Poston 
Shout out to her. Comes from Snapchat, and her question is, what upset were you most surprised by in the NCAA tournament? Not a lot of upsets this year so far in the NCAA tournament. A couple close games of higher seeds taking lower seeds to the wire, things like that. But, like I said, not a lot of upsets. I guess if you could say I was surprised by one, I thought Wisconsin was going to beat Oregon. I thought Ethan Happ was too good, but Oregon, I they were very inconsistent all year in the Pac-12. They were on a heater since the Pac-12 tournament, and they find themselves now in the Sweet 16 after beating Wisconsin and I forget who else. In, oh, UC Irvine in the second round. They now find themselves in a chance to go to the lead eight against Virginia, but I guess that would be my biggest upset that I was most surprised about at so far in the tournament. There, like I said, not a lot of upsets happen. This year, UC Irvine almost did it. Uh, New Mexico State took Auburn to the wire in the first um, round, which was pretty like exciting, pretty unexpected, I guess. Not, I don't want to say unexpected because New Mexico State, they won like 30 games this year, but the way Auburn survived that game and then came out and blew out Kansas was, I think maybe that game was like a reality check, like holy shit, because they just beat Tennessee handily. I'm getting way ahead of myself here for what's coming in the episode. Oregon over Wisconsin was my most shocking upset so far this year. Thank you for the question, Kennedy. We now switch to Instagram where we had some questions come in. The first one from Clark Griffith, shout out former El Prez, would you rather never eat meat again or never use hot water? Um, fun fact, last year, second week of January all the way till like the second week of February, I did not eat meat and it was fucking terrible. It was so hard going to like the same places that I would eat and try and find food that wasn't meat. It was extremely difficult. I had never realized how much meat I actually ate. So actually going through that for a month, I can 100% say never use hot water. Um, Cooking, you can boil water and it becomes hot. I don't know if that classifies as hot water. I assume what you're thinking and I'm thinking right off the bat is showers, pools, things like that. I don't think it would really impact it that much. I'm fine with a cold shower, fine with swimming in a little bit of cold. I don't I'm not asking for a freezing shower. I don't want that at all. But hot I can live without hot water, but meat I can certainly not live without. Thank you for that lovely hypothetical. Next, we move on to Lexi Long, who asks, how likely is it that Ohio State will beat Michigan again this fall? She's referencing the Ohio State-Michigan football game. Lexi is a very accomplished collegiate golfer at Ohio State University. Shout out to her. First and foremost, they released the spread, and Michigan, the game's at Michigan, so that's something to keep in mind as well. But they released the spread already for the game this year, and it's Michigan minus six or six and a half ridiculous absolutely ridiculous i get ohio state new coach new quarterback a lot of questions on offense that defense was horrid last year but i mean for fuck's sakes they've won like 10 out of the last 11 or 11 out of the last 12 um and i know shea patterson came back and michigan returns a good group of guys that i mean you could sort of say 
didn't live up to expectations last year, but I mean, shit, six and a half or six points already. I would hop on that already. I think it's about like an 80 to 90% chance right now that Ohio State wins. And as the season develops and Justin Fields gets more comfortable with that offense, I feel like it's only going to skyrocket even more. I don't know what Vegas is thinking right now. Um, I don't know what any Michigan fan would be thinking as Ohio State has owned Michigan for the past decade. It's not even been a rivalry, honestly, but whatever. I mean, 62-39 against the number one defense in the country last year. So I think it's like 80 to 90% likely that Ohio State beats Michigan in the fall. Question from Trent Rivellette now. Should the PJ allow cigarettes during tournament play? I believe he is referencing should PGA Tour players be allowed to smoke cigarettes. Probably not. Um, I know players are allowed to dip. Jason Duffner won the PGA Championship a couple years ago with a dip in his mouth the entire time. Shout out to him. That's pretty badass. I also think that since John Daly, not a lot of these guys actually do smoke cigarettes. And the way that golfers are now treating their bodies and training how hard they do and things like that and saying they're athletes, and they are athletes, I 100% agree with that, but how strict they are with training and things like that, I don't even think there's a desire for a player to smoke cigarettes, let alone smoke cigarettes turning around. So I feel like maybe if there was a need, the PGA would address it, but right now I don't think there's any need, so they're not going to address it. But it'd be cool to see, I guess. Like It's cool to see people dip when they play. It'd be cool to see people smoke cigs when they play, I guess, too. Next, we have a question from my biggest fan, Ali Stevens, who asks, Do you poop or pee soup? Please, I haven't slept in weeks. I thought about this long and hard. She was the first person to send in a question. I've been sitting on this question for a day and a half. And the answer is both. If there are, like, pieces of meat or vegetables in the soup, you poop those out, poop them out. But the broth, you piss that out. I'm that's where I'm settled at, and I know that's not a real definitive answer, but I think liquid-wise, the way your body digests things, it goes out the pisser, and the way your body digests like actual food and not just broth, it goes out the pooper, and that's my answer. Next, we have a question from Jack Muldoon who asks. Will Mike Thomas be the highest paid receiver in the league with his new contract? No, he won't because he's not that type of guy to request all that money. He'll be fine with whatever he gets because he's a team player. He wants what's best for the team. Going to want them to be able to sign other free agents, re-sign players that are in the contract year with him as well. But he will be paid extremely handsomely. I can guarantee you that. Now, we move on to the last question from Adam Adam Duddy, who asked, what's your take on a UK team with versus without PJ Washington if he's still questionable? I am going to answer that when we get to the Houston-UK game breakdown, but I can give you a little bit right now. PJ opens up things for Reed to where they can't double-team Reed and Reed Travis or EJ Montgomery or Nick Richards. 
And also, I would really like to see P.J. Washington shoot threes more this game. With hit, Without him, they can clog the middle like Wofford did and make things harder on the big guys that are playing without Washington. And it makes it harder on Keldon Tyler Hero when they are the great shooters, but they are also great slashers with the ball. And if they can, the team can pack in the paint against Kentucky without them, it makes it extremely harder for those guys to drive and get good looks at easy shots. So that is my little two cents there on that. I will talk more about what I think the game will look like after recent developments that PJ Washington is out of his walking boot and seems like all signs are pointing to him being able to play this Friday against Houston. But that does it for the mail sack. I appreciate every single one of you all for sending in questions. That segment wouldn't be possible without you, the devoted, lovely listeners out there. So thank you. And that will be making its return. Maybe not next week, but the week after that when I am strapped for segment ideas and I need something else to talk about. Oh, yeah. One last thing with the mail sack. Christina Bernone on Snapchat sent in not a question, just a demand of sponsor me. I don't know what that means, but Tina, if you will hit me with my Jeep going 10 miles per hour so I can do the Zion Charge Challenge, I will, whatever the hell sponsor you, sponsor me means. So we can arrange that. There you go. Okay, now that the mail sack is taken care of, we now move into talks of the NCAA tournament and the Sweet 16. We are going to start in the East region with the 1 versus 4 matchup of Duke versus Virginia Tech. I think the close game that Duke had with UCF where Taco Fall literally killed it. Zion Williamson killed it. RJ Barrett killed it. I know there are so many like Duke haters where where Zion missed that free throw and there was a hook hook and hold thing where both guys were hooking and holding to get the rebound. It wasn't just one, the Duke player. It was probably both of them doing it. But what I think has gone extremely unnoticed from that play is how when R.J. Barrett got the rebound, he didn't panic. He took his time, stayed composed, and put the ball back up. Extremely, extremely veteran move from a freshman there. And I know... It's the first weekend of March. You're not a freshman really anymore. You have 30-plus games of experience. I know that's something to harp on, and I don't want to come off as this Duke lover, but I think that is something that needs to be talked about and wasn't talked about enough. The Virginia Tech team, without Robinson, they beat Rob- Robinson. They beat Duke, but Duke didn't have Zion. I think... That game against UCF for Duke was the last thing Virginia Tech needed. Buzz Williams is going to be coaching his ass off, but I think the talent and the wake-up call that Duke just had the last round is really going to be the end of Virginia Tech. I think Duke comes out focused, and I think the blueprint on how to beat Duke is out. Try and make them make threes where they are really either on or are they really really off and so far Zion has <clears throat> excuse me so far Zion has bailed them out 
it seems, their first two games. I don't want to say the North Dakota State game, he bailed them out, but like North Dakota State kept it close a little bit in the first half, a little bit in the second half, and then Coach K and Zion sort of realized, like, holy shit, I'm the best player on the floor. Um, nobody can guard me in the post on North Dakota State. Just give me the fucking ball, and I'll go score for you. And he did that, and he took over the game against UCF in the late stages as well, um, getting that and one possibility against Taco Fall, getting him his fifth foul, getting him out of the game. Again, I think the wake-up call from last the last game against UCF is what is going to ultimately be the downfall of Virginia Tech, and Duke rolls on to a victory against Virginia Tech. Next, we move on to the other game in the East, the 3 versus 2 matchup of LSU versus Michigan State. LSU without a coach, I was still high on these guys. A lot of people picked GL to upset them. Um, I did have Maryland beating LSU in the second round, but I was still like... I still understood that LSU was a really good basketball team. Trey Waters is extremely good point guard. And what does so well in March is guard play. And he is probably one of the best guards left in the tournament. I don't think he's the best guard. I'm going to get to him a little bit when we go to the South region. But this is where I think that coaching-wise, not having... Will Wade is going to catch up to them. I think Tom Izzo is too good of a coach to have this entire week and not have a game plan to try and stop those guys. I think Cassius Winston is going to take that matchup against Waters extremely personal on the defensive end and shut him, not shut him down, but slow him down and make his day at the office on the court extremely difficult and extremely, extremely long. And I do think... I think LSU's the more talented team, but I think Michigan State plays together as a team a lot better, and I think that has to do with Izzo. So I'm going to take Michigan State because of Izzo and because LSU doesn't have a coach, head coach really. And since we're talking about Izzo, in the first round, he got on one of his players. Pretty difficult. Um, I'm fine with him yelling at him, everything like that. The only thing that... I was like, whoa, shit, like that's that's not that cool. It's when they were in the huddle and Izzo's sitting down and then he like lunges at the player and stuff and other players had to hold Izzo back. I'm fine with getting yelled at. Like when I played sports in high school and grade school and growing up, I responded a lot better to coaches yelling at me and getting on me and like challenging me rather than them just I don't want to say babying me, but like being easier on me. When a coach would yell at me or challenge me, I would get mad and play angrier and want to like prove him wrong, I guess. And I think maybe that's what Izzo was trying to do. It did work. They drew up a play for him right out of the timeout and he scored and everything like that. But again, totally fine with what Izzo did and gets people ready for the real world, everything like that. But the only problem, as I've said before, and I'm going to end it on this, is I don't like him like lunging at the player because then things sort of could get physical and there's no place in that for that in college athletics or any athletics at all where a coach puts his hands on a player or vice versa, a player puts his hands on a coach. Moving on to the South region now, we have 
the, nope, excuse me, we're going to go to the west. We're going to the west, we're not going to the south. The west region, you have the number one seed Gonzaga Bulldogs going up against the fourth seeded Florida State Seminoles. Gonzaga is my NCAA champion in my bracket that I did on that podcast last week. So I sort of have to roll with Gonzaga here, and I do think Gonzaga does end up winning this game, but I think Florida State, with their size and athleticism, keeps it close throughout the entire game. I think it's going to be a much better game than what people are sort of anticipating because of Gonzaga being so dominant so far, scoring 53 points in one half already in the tournament. But for Florida State, athletically, I think... Outmatches Gonzaga, but I think that Rui Achimura and Brandon Clark has played extremely well so far in this tournament. I think he continues to play well. I think Rui starts to step up as well, and those two propel Gonzaga over Forest 8. It's a bit of a shorter breakdown than what I did for the past two games, but I just think it's very cut and dry there that Gonzaga does end up getting that victory. Moving on, we have Texas Tech going up against Michigan. Texas Tech, the three seed, and Michigan, the two seed. Okay, this is where I've struggled a little bit. I'm in the tournament so far. Everybody's sort of selling on Michigan. I told you you were a fucking idiot if you were because Michigan's a good basketball team. But Texas Tech, the way they beat Buffalo, who's an extremely tough team, the way they beat them really opened my eyes to how good maybe this Texas Tech team really is. Uh, Jarrett Culver, 18 points on the year. He's leading the team in points and rebounds and assists. I think Michigan has more players on the team that can... Wow, now I'm talking myself out of it. I think Michigan has more players on the team that contribute can contribute to a win than just what Texas Tech does with Jared Culver. Um, Ignacius Bradzakis, for, I know I probably butchered that, but for Michigan, he is the leading scorer with 14 points. He's John Teske, seven rebounds a game, and then uh, Xavier Simpson, 6.8 assists per game for Michigan. I just did it. I, I literally wrote Gonzaga versus Texas Tech down, but I'm here... I just clicked it. I'm marking it out. I just talked myself into it. Michigan over Texas Tech in this game because I think Charles Matthews and I, it's also we need a swaggy pool game, and I think this could be it. He's sort of gone quiet the last half of the year. Yeah, I, I will. Yeah, the last half of the year, we haven't really heard much from him. Um, I think it's about time he steps up, and I think this is the game for him to do it and helps. I'm not saying he's going to take over the game by any means, but maybe like 12, 15 points, maybe three or four threes, and really sets the tone and swings momentum at some point in the game firmly in Michigan's direction and helps propel the Wolverines to a victory. The next matchup is Oregon, the 12th seed, the lowest seed left in the tournament going up against Virginia. The reason Oregon's here is because of their defense um, Oregon defeated Wisconsin and Yuva Irvine by an average of 18.5 points and together allowed just 54 points on average in both those games. So their defense was everything, but Oregon's going up against the premier team in the country. 
when defense is the topic, and that is Virginia. And Hunter and Jerome and Guy for Virginia, I think, are going to be too much. It's going to be hard for Oregon to stop all three of those guys. And I think we see shades of early season Oregon where there was still some question marks about him, and we don't see late season Oregon in this game. And I hate to just be so cut and dry here, but Virginia's a one seed for a reason. Oregon's a 12 seed for a reason. And it's because Virginia is the better team. I've been sort of being a dick around my house when there's a close game and then the higher seed comes up and starts pulling away and I'm saying, oh what starts pulling away and it's all the saying oh it's almost like they're the better team and I think here this game could be close for a little bit but I do think Virginia is going to pull away at some point and not win this game comfortably but win this game sort of comfortably and the saying of oh it's it's almost like they're the better team and will definitely be said at some point by me in this game next we go to what I think people are sort of pegging the matchup in the Midwest region of North Carolina versus Auburn as the best game. I think this has a chance to be the game of the weekend. Uh, Purdue versus Tennessee. These guys played earlier this year, and Purdue squeaked out a victory in the Bahamas. Carson Edwards was fantastic in that game. Grant Williams was fantastic in that game. I really want Purdue to win because I'm a huge Carson Edwards fan. I had not even because we share the first same name. He spells it C A R S E N, like a freaking loser. But that's neither here nor there. That does not affect how well he plays on the court. He's averaging 34 points so far in the tournament. He's ridiculous, ridiculously good. But I think with Bone and Schofield and Williams, it's just going to be too much for Carson Edwards to single-handedly beat. I know Purdue, they have some shooters on their team, but I don't think they have a guy as their number two scorer consistent enough that will be able to cancel out either Bone or Schofield having a day, a good scoring day besides Grant Williams. And both of these coaches, uh, Matt Painter and what's-his-face, um, Rick Barnes, are just mm, not like they don't show up in real big games as of late so happy for whatever coach gets it done and it's because their resume needs it I feel like but ultimately I think Tennessee with their three-headed monster of Bone, Williams, and Schofield overpower Carson Edwards and the Boilermakers and Purdue and Tennessee moves on past Purdue. Moving on to the Midwest region, we have a great matchup here of two high-powered offenses on the hardwood. We have the fifth-seeded Auburn Tigers going up against the one-seed North Carolina Tar Heels. Bryce Brown leading Auburn with 15.9 points on the year. Cameron Johnson with 16.9 points for the Tar Heels. Luke May, the leading rebounder. Assist-wise, you have Kobe White for North Carolina with 4.1 and Jared Harper with 5.7 assists for the Tigers. Bryce Brown and Jared Harper are extremely talented guards for Auburn and Bruce Pearl just knows how to coach those guys so well. Harper and Brown 
came out against Kansas and put on a scoring display, beating, I don't know what the final score was or what they ended up beating by, but at times they were up by like 25 points against Kansas, and you don't really say that a lot about Kansas teams. On the other end, North Carolina is extremely talented with Kobe White, Cameron Johnson, Luke May. Nasir Little is still finding, trying to find his way, and I think maybe this is the game where North Carolina's big men with Nasir Little and Luke May could pay dividends because I think Johnson and Kobe White and Harper and Bryce Brown, I think they're all sort of going to cancel out. But I definitely think the big men advantage goes to North Carolina, and I think Roy Williams is going to still try and play fast-paced, just like Auburn is. I think both teams are extremely comfortable doing that. If there is a point where North Carolina tries to slow the game down and get their big men involved, I think that's going to benefit them extremely well and is going to get Cameron Johnson, Luke May, Nasir Little involved in matchups down low that they can exploit against Auburn's big men. But as I say this, if shots are falling for Auburn, Auburn has an extremely good chance to pull off this upset because when they are hitting, they when it rains, it pours, to quote a one Luke Combs, um, they fill up the basket at an extremely rapid pace. This game is going to be played, I think, at like 100 miles per hour. I can't wait to watch it. In the end, though, I think North Carolina's big men are the key to this game. I think Luke May has a big game and gets North Carolina to the Elite Eight. Now, we talk about the hometown team. We have the Kentucky Wildcats going up against the Houston Cougars who beat my Ohio State Buckeyes in the round of 32, and that game... Really wasn't close. Ohio State was just sort of holding on. Houston, what bothered me watching Houston against Ohio State, and Ohio State is nowhere near a good of a team as UK. I get that. But Ohio State and Kentucky do have some tendencies that they both share. They turn the ball over a little bit too much. Now, we I went and looked. Kentucky only had nine turnovers against Wofford, but Wofford really isn't that stout of a defense defensive team Houston is a extremely good defensive team they apply pressure full court wise Um, their guards are quick they're big men it's a three-man committee but they pretty good but maybe they look good because Ohio State's big men aren't that great Kentucky's big men are definitely a lot better than Houston's. I will give them that. And they definitely have the advantage there with P.J. Washington, who right now it does look like he's going to play, which is a huge benefit for Kentucky. Reed Travis, E.J. Montgomery, and Nick Richards. Those four are definitely better than what Houston has down low. And even if P.J. doesn't play, they are definitely better than what Houston is going to have down low. What concerns me is Hagens and Quickly and Hero and Kelton Johnson. They're definitely not careless with the ball, but they do force some passes sometimes. They do have some tendencies of turning the ball over where Hagens, I don't know why, he just scares me sometimes. Houston's guards are extremely intense on defense and are good at forcing turnovers, and that is about the only thing 
that scares me with what Hughes can do. Um, they do rebound extremely well. Every player on the court rebounds for them, all five positions, extremely well. But I don't think they've gone up against a team with such well-rounded bigs as Kentucky has. And that's me saying that even without the possibility of P.J. Washington playing. I do think sort of like the North Carolina-Houston game, the North Carolina, excuse me, Auburn game, that... The guards are probably going to cancel each other out. Um, Kentucky definitely has more options to step up and have a big game than Houston does. I think Higgins can have a good game. Um, One of my roommates thinks quickly is the key to the game. Uh, Corey Davis Jr. for Houston leading the team with 17.1 points per game scoring-wise. I think he is going to cancel out whoever is the leading scorer for Kentucky. And then um, Robinson Jr. is also a good scoring threat for Houston. I think he can cancel out whoever the second leading scorer for Kentucky is. But I think the big men and the second or third like scoring option is what is going to propel Kentucky to this win. On the paper, though, I do have Houston down. Houston scares the living shit out of me. For the past, like, two months of the season, just sort of as, like, being a dickhead and, like, joking around with my roommates, I was saying, like, Houston is not a team I want to see in the NCAA tournament as a Cats fan. I still don't. I, this matchup, like, terrifies me, and I'm trying to put on a brave face here and be impartial and break this down for you, and I am sort of, like, convincing myself that this can be... Not an easy win for Kentucky, but matchup-wise and everything like that, Kentucky definitely outweighs what Houston does, but Houston does scare me, and I'm not going to say they don't. So, again, the key to this game for me is Kentucky's bigs and the third guy on Kentucky that can step up. Um, I don't know who that might be whether it's going to be Higgins or it's going to be Keldon. I think it honestly could be. I think Keldon Johnson has played well through late April, early March, but I think this is a game where his size and his skill set can extremely can be extremely helpful for UK with how well he slashes and shoots, um, complimenting the guys down low. He can be a matchup problem, and I think he's the key along with Kentucky's big. So... I did have Houston winning, I'm not going to lie to you, but here you go again. Click, click, erase, erase, erase. I move on UK over Houston in a good, very good Sweet 16 matchup. That moves us to the Elite Eight of Duke versus Michigan State, Gonzaga versus Michigan, Virginia versus Tennessee, and North Carolina versus UK. Pretty chalk. Um, Ones and twos, ones and twos, ones and twos, and ones and twos. And I was talking to my dad when this tournament started, and I had this thought where we should just cut this field to 16. Just have 16 teams because the top two seeds in each region are, I think, head and shoulders just way better than every other team. And it's proved that. It's pretty much chalk has been. There's not really been that many upsets. Oregon is, as I said, the highest team at 12. 
left in the Sweet 16. There hasn't been any real Cinderella moments or buzzer beaters or things like that that have happened so far in the tournament. The tournament still needs its Cinderella one-shining moment type moment, and maybe that'll come this week, or there's still a lot of tournament left, but part of me is like, okay, this is good. Like, I want to see high level of basketball being played, and these guys are clearly one and two in their regions for a reason. I'm happy to see that. But part of me is also like, well, this kind of sucks. Like, it hasn't felt really like March Madness yet. So take that as you will. But just running through this, I'm not going to spend a lot of time breaking these games down. But out of Duke and Michigan State, I have Duke winning. Gonzaga and Michigan, I have Gonzaga winning. Virginia and Tennessee, I have Virginia winning. And North Carolina versus UK, I have North Carolina winning. Next week, we will. I will gladly talk about every single Sweet 16 game and every single Elite Eight game. But I just, right now, there's no point in me going and breaking down these hypothetical matchups that haven't even ha- like aren't even for sure to happen yet. But I think Duke way too talented, and Coach K and Izzo sort of cancel each other out on the coaching end, and Duke wins that. Gonzaga is a way better team with a lot more talent than Michigan has, so Gonzaga wins that. Virginia against Tennessee, I think that Virginia, just the way they play defense, can stifle Tennessee, and they have enough guys that they can cancel out the three-headed monster at Tennessee, and then North Carolina over UK. North Carolina, it's hard to beat the same team out of your conference twice in the same year. And Kobe White is an extremely, totally different player than what he was against UK in December as he is now. He was turning the ball over a lot against Ashton Hagens, and Ashton Hagens can still do that. He's a great defensive point guard, but Kobe White, um, the way he's grown and the way that North Carolina team has grown and gelled, I think, again, hard to beat an out-of-conference team twice in the same year, so North Carolina gets their revenge. That's all I'm going to say about the Elite Eight games. Now that the NCAA tournament talk is taken care of, I did mention we were going to talk MLB, and I am going to forewarn you right now. I am a baseball fan, but it is probably my, air quotes, weakest sport for me to talk about. I I do know players, I do know storylines, I know coaches, I know managers, excuse me, not coaches, I know managers and things like that, but the ins and outs and rotations and things like that is, it's extremely hard for me to sit there and act like I'm this great analyst of MLB when I'm just not. I appreciate it as a fan and everything like that, but again, it is probably my weakest sport that I would say I know about. One thing before I even dive into this, um, there's a commercial going around of a bunch of players at a press conference and they're giving each other a hard time about what they're going to do. Um, I'm talking about World Series winnings and home runs hit and MVPs and Youngs, everything like that. I think that commercial is great for getting players into people's minds because I think the last big star that baseball had was Derek Jeter. And once he retired, there was sort of this fill of like who is the face of the MLB. And the past couple years, you could argue it was Bryce Harper or Mike Trout. I 
think it is firmly Mike Trout, but I think if you looked at the big three sports of NFL, NBA, and MLB, if you asked who is, let's say, Tom Brady's the face of the NFL, and let's say LeBron James is the face of the NBA, and you say Mike Trout's the face of MLB, if you were to ask like a random fan on the street, like, name me the biggest basketball player, football player, and MLB guy, or like pick them out of the lineup, I think they would easily be able to do Tom Brady and LeBron James, but Mike Trout... I, I know he's in Los Angeles and everything, well, Anaheim with the Angels, so technically not Los Angeles, but you know what I mean. He's in California, big market, but he is sort of like the odd man out of that three. What the MLB did with that commercial gave people personalities, um, which they all have, um, gave you faces and names and things like that. I think they're doing a good job of getting – players faces and personalities and names out into the public with this commercial and that is needed to create new stars in the league after like Jeter went A-Rod went Ortiz went all these guys are retiring there's a whole new wave of players that are there that are sort of untapped and not really talked about as much as these other players were that now their career is coming to an end, that the MLB needs new stars. I think this commercial is a great example of the league trying to do that and push new guys into stardom for the league. So I would I watched it a couple times today. It's a good commercial. It's a funny commercial. Let the kids play is the hashtag at the end. Mike Trout says, um, I love that. Go out of your way to try and see that. Um, that's my only really rant and rambling about the MLB. I'll now give you some predictions of what I think is going to happen. I think in the AL, we'll look at the AL. Let's see, we'll do East, and then we'll do the Central, then we'll do the West. I think in the East, it's really a two-team race between the Red Sox and the Yankees, and I think that the Red Sox are going to get it done again this year like they did last year. I think their team overall, just their lineup, their rotation, top to bottom, is a little bit better than the Yankees. So I move the Red Sox on to the AL East. In the Central, it's the Indians to lose. This Indians team is facing a lot of injuries. Francisco Lindor, the superstar that they have at shortstop, is just a strain of bad lucks. Already had one injury, and then while he was rehabbing that in the minor leagues, um, he sprained his ankle, an acute sprained ankle. He's going to be out about six to nine weeks, so maybe two months of this season. Um, I do think if you are going to lose a guy like that, it is better to do it early on than in the middle or to the near end of a season. He can be a spark when he comes back. The rotation the Indians have, though, with Kluber, who has been killing in the regular season the past couple years, but ever since the Indians World Series run in 2016 in the postseason, he has just been non-existent. Um, Trevor Bauer, Clevenger, Carrasco, and Bieber. Some people are pegging Bieber as a outside long shot chance at the Cy Young. Again, the Central is the Indians to lose. Some people are picking the Twins because they put up a lot of runs and the rotation is okay, but I do think it's the Indians to lose, so I will put them there. And then out of the West, going out on a real big freaking branch here, I got the Astros. 
They are just too talented. I know the A's were the wild card last year. I think they will be the wild card again along with the Yankees. But I think the Astros are too good. They signed Verlander to that contract. They signed Bregman to his contract as well. Um, So we look at the wild cards now in the AL, and I have the Yankees and the A's. Now we shift our focus to the NL. We start in the NL East. I think the Braves are going to win this. The Nationals lose Bryce Harper, who goes to the <clears throat> goes to the Phillies. The Braves were a playoff team last year. Their roster only got better as they added Josh Donaldson, a former AL MVP. Um, they bring everybody on that team back add him i think the braves are poised to do big things in the nl this year with the nationals losing firepower on offense but still have a great rotation with scherzer and what's his face uh strasburg as well but i do think the east is the braves division in the central i have everybody's favorite fucking team the st louis cardinals they add paul goldschmidt um, they add Andrew Miller from the Indians in the offseason as well. I think both of those guys are huge additions. The Cardinals haven't made the playoffs in a couple years, I believe, so that's a little concerning, but I think this is the year they find their way back into the postseason. Next, we go to the West in the NL, and I think it's the Dodgers again. And Kershaw struggled with some injuries in spring training, but he should be fine. He has struggled with injuries the past couple years, and that has been a little concerning but they made it to back-to-back World Series, and I don't think anybody in the West, maybe the Giants could apply a little bit of pressure. Um, you could see maybe the Padres just because they signed Machado, but I'm not too concerned about them either. I think it's the Dodgers division in the West. The two wild cards, I went back and forth, but I have to pick the Brewers because Christian Yelich is the most handsome man in baseball, and I'm comfortable with myself as a man to say that he's a handsome devil he is and he's a great baseball player so I think the Brewers get in as well and then I think the wild card could either be the Mets or it could be the Giants I am going or the the Cubs are we gonna leave the Cubs out Mets Cubs Giants fuck all right I had the Mets but I crossed them out I put the Cubs in um I'll be honest with you, I know Chris Bryant's there, I know Javier Baez is there, Javi Baez is there, but the rotation is still a little iffy to me, You Darvish got fucking rocked on his first pitch in spring training in the minor leagues, so the rota- if the rotation can get figured out, the Cubs have the offense to put up runs, and if they can find a couple guys there to just be solid with Lester and other people there in the rotation as well, they should be fine. Individual awards... On the year I don't have picked out yet. I'll let me look at that real okay. Here, the AL MVP is probably going to be Mike Trout because he just got paid and he's going to ball out. The Cy Young for I'm going to probably Cy Young for the AL. I'm going to go with Chris Sale from the Red Sox and the NL. I think the MVP is going to be it was Yelich last year. Let's see. I think yeah. Yeah, we'll do. We're going to put Bryce Harper in the NL and I think the NL 
Cy Young is going to be Noah Syndergaard teaming up with uh, DeGrom for the Mets. I think it's Syndergaard's turn this year, and I'm going to do that. That is that. Yep, I did it. I talked MLB. I'm so proud of myself for doing that. Holy shit. Okay, that is MLB talk on Carson Sack. I cannot promise you the next time I'm going to be talking about the MLB, but that is that. All right, that does it for the 51st episode of Carson Sack Podcast where we talk balls. Next week, we have Sweet 16 talk, Elite 8 talk, a Final Four preview. That's going to be a hell of a show. We also have, depending on when the NBA playoffs start, we have me talking about that. I know for a fact, though, we have me talking about WrestleMania, breaking down that entire 16-match card for you. So you have that to fucking look forward to. Can't wait for that, that eight-hour show that they're putting on. But a lot of good matches there. That will be at the end. So if you don't like wrestling, which I know a lot of you all probably don't, whatever, you won't have to listen. But I fucking love the hell out of it. So I might enjoy talking about and watching. So I'm going to do that next week. Um, thank you for listening to this episode of Cards Attack Podcast where we talk balls. Like, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, all that good shit. I appreciate it. Come out to Tin Roof this Friday for the game uh, at 10 o'clock for UK versus Houston. It's a tent party, whatever the hell you want to do. This episode was brought to you by Tin Roof. Uh, shout out to Tin Roof for being an official sponsor of Carson Sack Podcast, where we talk balls. As we always end here on Carson Sack Podcast, where we talk balls, we will be singing. Yeah.